Hi, Optimizers. This is JJ Ruescas, and this is another episode of Optimizing Me or Optimizandome, the show with top performer guests from whom we'll learn about their stories, their ups and downs, their habits, routines, and mostly their mindset. Our guest today is a shaman from the Andean Amazonian traditions. His skill is a translation of the silent messages that sacred plants like ayahuasca, tobacco, San Pedro, and others utter to human beings. He is indeed a connector between ancient healing technologies and the modern world. This is especially helpful in situations where modern medicine cannot heal spiritual wounds. His curiosity led him not only to embrace South American mysticism, but also philosophies like Buddhism, alchemy, Zen, Tantra, and others. His wise words produce a profound introspection in those who listen to them. I'm very excited about this conversation because he's one of my go-tos when talking about altered states of consciousness. Without further ado, let me introduce you to the shaman Juan Guar. Hey Juan, how is it going? Hello, hello my friend. Hello everyone who's watching this. And I'm so happy to get you back here. We had one of the first episodes with you in Spanish in Bolivia. And now we are almost two years apart. So let's catch up with what has happened in two years. First, who's Juan War? What does it mean to be a shaman? Okay, heavy question. So who's Juan War? First of all, Juan War is not my birth name. Um, due to uh, legal reasons, um, given that some of the work that I perform around the world still uh, has... Um, certain legal stigma. I'd rather not connect my passport name to my given name. Um, and this happens a lot in shamanism that people kind of present themselves with a new name, which I uh, accept. And I think it's, it's very good for some people who experience a rebirth to, um, to mark the moment in which they changed and assume a new name. I believe in, in second birth and in new beginnings. In my case, my name is just a pure formality. Um, so that's about the name. Now, if you ask who is behind that name, I don't really know. And I think I don't have the interest of knowing anymore. Um, as if I were trying to identify myself with a particular narrative or with a particular story. For many years, I wanted to be a shaman um, because I thought it was the... I actually didn't want to be a shaman. I'm just telling the story in the way that I can. But I did have this um, projection that the shaman was the most that a man could be. However, I am more interested today in being a man. I think that being a man is actually the most vital, most necessary, and something that is sometimes uh, lacking. Um, so although I am a shaman, I think that first of all, my real answer would be that I am a man. And, and everything that happens after is something that we have to see. And the second question uh, regarding what is shamanism is a question that I get asked a lot. And I feel that whomever is asked a similar question um, regarding their vital interest will have a lot to say about it. And 
in the practice of saying a lot about it, will have condensed or will have found uh, an appropriate phrase that, it, that pinpoints on whatever practice they do. So whether if you ask a Buddhist, what is Buddhism? It's the same. I mean, we can talk for days, for years about Buddhism, but there are ways that each um, practitioner or each master has to condense a, what their training is and to express it bluntly. So to express it bluntly, I would say that shamanism is the techniques that allow ourselves to understand that the mysteries of the universe reside in the human body. So whomever has any practice that seeks to relate the microcosm, that being our physical body, by physical body, I also include the, um, the, the psychological sphere and the spiritual sphere, of course. So whomever is trying to bridge the gap or to somehow relate the cosmos with the vehicle that we are incarnating and whomever is practicing techniques to find that the soul of the universe is identical to the soul of man, I would say that that person is practicing shamanism. So whatever practice one has to accomplish this, I would call it a shamanic practice. For example, there are some paths which are intellectual. Right, So we could refer to the intellectual paths as if they were um, religions. So one can read the Bible or read the Quran or read the sutras. And there is a, a special, I would call it, there is a sort of mind training that has to do with that endeavor. But that endeavor does not necessarily, it, it does not apply any practice. It is merely reading, understanding, believing in some cases. Now, when these religions, whether they be from the Islamic world or from Buddhism or from Hinduism or from Native American traditions or from Aboriginal traditions from the world, from Siberia to Australia, whatever those techniques are, I would call them shamanism. And so would have Mircea Eliade, for example, which was... Um, um, an anthropologist of the last century that was fundamental in bringing forth uh, shamanism into a contemporary sphere. So aside from identifying shamanism with, with whatever practice I have, I, I think the best definition is that, that shamanism is the practice of the techniques that seek to find that the mysteries of the universe can be find, found in the human body. Hmm. Now, what I hear is that there are so many traditions as probably cultures have existed in the, in the history and uh, that nowadays those ones are starting to get re-emerging or maybe becoming more public to the modern times where we are mostly reigned by psychological or by standards that were very different from the traditions, from the traditional and the traditions, if I mean that way, right? So um, what are those traditions that, for example, you um, have come from and that impermeate the majority of, of the work that you do? That's a great question. Um, let me see. 
Um, ingrained in that question, there is there's something that I would like to point out first, that when we talk about religion and shamanism, we, we appear to be talking about two different things, right? I don't really think that's the case, but we have a somewhat of a chicken and egg um, paradox. And the paradox is whether religion invented shamanism or whether shamanism invented religion. And to understand this, one needs to stop looking at these two things as if they're separate. If you ask me personally, I cannot answer whether the theory predates the practice or whether the practice predates the theory. I find that something, it's very similar to the study of mythology and ritual in anthropology. For example, we have myths that tell a story and then we find in those same cultures certain rituals that produce the myth or reenact the myth. And we could say, well, there was this myth first and there was this story and then we had rituals that would confirm it to the people. But we also could uh, believe that there were first some rituals that appeared by themselves and the, and the myth uh, that was uh, told after generations came from that ritual too. So instead of seeing a sort of clash or dualism between religion and shamanism, as if we're talking about theory and practice, uh, we can understand them as the same link that mythology and ritual have. So these come in sort of, they come together. What we can say, though, is that both religion and shamanism, which shamanism as the practices of any religious or spiritual theory, or as a religion itself being the theoretical part of any spiritual practice, these are all idiosyncratic and they are all cultural. So they appear in certain time and in certain geography and in certain, a, a certain given people. So in the same way that we, ca we cannot subtract um, the mythology of the Native Americans from the Native American condition. In the same way, we cannot um, separate shamanism from whichever lineage or whichever tradition comes from. Uh, having said that, I was not born under any cultural mythology, under any um, religion or a... I was, to put it bluntly, I was not ordained for this path from the beginning, um, but instead I had very strong roots in uh, my, both my families on my father's side and my mother's side, that they had been carrying certain ancestral knowledge from their own uh, blood, in this case, mostly Celtic. Um, but one thing that uh, placed me in this path very strongly, and particularly in the path of looking for other traditions, because it's very rare that you will find, for example, a Buddhist that is born a Buddhist that will eventually endeavor in, into discovering the truth of Christianity. And it's very strange that you will have uh, Christian priests that are born to it that are eventually called to Buddhism. Uh, and in this case, I'm also reminded by um, a very ancient uh, a treatise that is called the, uh, the Treatise of Abramelin the Mage, 
Abramelin the Mage was a Judean uh, ascetic that was the master of um, a, a Jew called Abraham of Worms. I don't remember exactly what time this happened in, but I think it was in the 1300s. And when Abraham of Worms left um, his, a, his native city and voyaged to Jerusalem and met this ascetic master, this master, Abramelin the Mage, said that if you are born under any religion, he recommends um, fervently that one pursues the path that that religion prescribes because all religions can lead you to the ultimate goal. And if you doubt the religion you are born in, you will doubt any other religion. So instead of... Um, rejecting the religion that you're born and then finding truths in other religions and being disillusioned by those truths. What happened, what is happening is that this very person that is seeking is actually not having the necessary amount of faith. And faith is something that we, we really do practice. So I don't know. And perhaps I, if I were, if I would have had a very Christian family, perhaps I would have defined myself as a complete Christian. Or if I was born under a Buddhist family, I would be only a Buddhist. However, I do feel that some of the conditions and circumstances that um, in a way nourished my path are something that are part of the contemporary condition and circumstances of others also. And what is happening, particularly in this century and in the last couple of decades, is that we have broken this contact with our traditions. So you can have, for example, uh, a European descendant being born in Argentina that traveled to um, the Andes and the Amazon to seek a new tradition. But in this case, it's not a new tradition. It was trying to trying to find something that would speak directly of myself. And I feel that nowadays we have this idea that we go and seek masters or lineages or we identify with certain different paths and we make them part of our narrative because we feel that we are rootless that we don't come from anywhere. So instead of using these paths to understand what I said in the beginning, this um, connection between the, the soul of the human being and the soul of the universe, instead we just collect different traditions and we make them part of our ego. And that's something that I had to uh, identify and to battle a lot with. However, if we also understand the conditions that we are mostly born in nowadays, and I use myself as an example, the first thing that I wanted to do was to get in contact with the tradition of my forefathers. So I traveled to the um, British Isles in the hope of discovering and getting into contact with a real Druidic lineage. And what I found was that even though there are many people that call themselves Druids, that there are many, uh, actually I've, I've met many Druids themselves, they are what they are due to the connection that they have to the earth and to their blood. But I did not find any unbroken lineage of transmission that came from the ancient times to today. So if one has, for example, European blood and is looking to 
um, have a deeper connection with where we come from, if one would try to seek those traditions, uh, I think that one would be vastly disappointed because even though there is a huge um, uprising and a huge revolution and a huge um, movement of bringing these the understanding of our forefathers back into our time, there is no unbroken lineage of transmission such as one uh, can find in Aboriginal cultures that have kept these uh, lineages of transmission intact. And for me, that has been something very important. Um, I think that whatever I could learn of my own body by myself could take me a lifetime. But if I learn from those who have experimented with their bodies for the past 5,000 years, then I would be, in effect, be standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, this is the great phrase of Newton when they asked him, how did you get to this discovery? Well, what I did was stand in the shoulders of giants. And if we are to disregard the tradition, and if we are to disregard 5,000 years as is the minimum that we can ascribe to Andean Amazonian shamanism, or uh, 2,600 years, which is the the a minimum also that we should ascribe to any Buddhist tradition, then we see that by receiving a lineage that has passed the test of time, we are not only using our own body to discover the things that we can discover, but we are also using the experimentation, the knowledge, and the practice of thousands of people that have maintained these lineages. So even though when I was young, I felt in myself certain qualities that would have allowed me to discover many uh, shamanic techniques of reconnection by my own self, I also thought that it was completely arrogant to disregard 5,000 years or 2,600 years, or in the case of Sikhism, 600 years, it doesn't matter, but to disregard proven lineages seemed ludicrous and seemed um, to be arrogant. So one of my main interests was to in effect, get into to contact with these lineages of verified transmission that have produced um, saintly or enlightened or powerful beings in whatever way these lineages describe them, to test the teachers and to become part of these lineages. And this is something that can only happen for people that have conditions such as I have that were not born in any particular tradition, and instead by the huge disgrace of not having a solid foundation, we actually have the great opportunity to learn from different um, uh, traditions, learn from different transmissions, and to be able to scope the whole spectrum of religious practice, or what we would call shamanism, from peoples all around the world. Wow. So lineage. So we were talking first about religion as the theoretical part and shamanism as the practical side of spirituality. Am, am I on, on the same path so far? Or cool? Yes. Now, um, this lineage or the different lineages or traditions, how do they kept alive after so many years with so many variations? Or how, what has been your your experience in tracing those ones and actually also um, figuring out which one resonates for you. Yes, there, there are two very interesting points there. The first is how did these lineages per, uh, survive? 
And the second is, how did I choose whatever lineage I, um, I inherited or, or how did I go about it? So to answer the first question, I would say that the only reason why these lineages survived until our days is through secrecy. Okay. What would happen if we have, for example, I'll give you an example. When we're talking about this, this dichotomy between the theoretical and the practical aspect of spirituality, which we could separate into religion and shamanism. For example, the lineage of transmission of practical um, techniques in Judaism was largely the Merkava tradition. And, Mer and then in about the, the 1300s uh, began the Kabbalistic movement. The Kabbalistic movement is also what we would call the esoteric aspect, right? So esoteric means that it is kept within and exoteric is that it is shown outside. So when we look at a religion um, or or uh, a lineage of transmission and a mythology with all its rituals. We could look, for example, at Judaism, and we could say that Judaism is the, or for example, the Torah is the exoteric aspect of that religion. And the esoteric aspect is the very secret transmission of the Merkava lineage. If we would say the same of for example, Buddhism, we would say that the exoteric aspect of Buddhism are the teachings of the Buddha, which are called the sutras, or the sutras begin with saying, thus have I heard. So they come from what the Buddha said. But the esoteric transmission of Buddhism is uh, Tantra, and Tantra were secret practices that were kept secret by um, transmitting them from student uh, from teacher to student and the student had to abide by very particular laws and had to prove himself through various tests to actually um, receive these initiations and the same thing we could say of all the religions of the world uh, for example sufism is the esoteric aspect of islam um and what about christianity well, Christianity, uh, that's a very good point. I would say that the esoteric aspect of Christianity in, in its beginning was uh, Gnosticism. Gnosticism, mm -hmm. however, was highly repressed by the church, particularly after the Second Council of Nicaea, in which uh, the Christian religion took on a very um, stiff and fixated form, which it did not have before. So a lot of the things that we're discussing also actually come from the um, apparent repression that Judeo-Christian traditions have exerted on other beliefs. In this case, not particularly Judaism, or at least not Judaism after the destruction of the Second Temple, but if we are to think of the two um, religions that have... Um, proselytized their message more and that have converted people more, we would be talking about Islam and Christianity. So we are coming from the past 2000 years of Christianity in which Christianity has done all it was uh, able to do to suppress any other practices. However, for example, we find nowadays priests talking about the evils of paganism, for example, but then they are 
um, praying to candles and blowing candles. And the very act of blowing candles is a pagan tradition, right? <laughs> so in, even in Christianity, there are esoteric aspects. So, for example, we have esoteric aspects of Christianity in the um, uh, training of exorcists, for example, which is, is a teaching that is not widely given, is very reserved, is, is kept only for very particular circumstances and elements. So how was it that the esoteric aspects of all these religions survived? They survived due to the secrecy they were clothed in. If any of these traditions would not, would not have um, been kept secret, then they would have been very quickly corrupted. Because we see, for example, we are not talking the same English um, um, that existed even 400 years ago. If we read Shakespeare, very few people can read Shakespeare in the original English, and that's not even old English. If you try to read um, the poem of Beowulf that is written in old English, most people just, it runs completely by your head. So if we take into account that language changes so fast, then what would be the way in which an esoteric tradition would survive without any corruption? It would be impossible unless there would be a transmission of a fixated uh, language that could survive the um, maelstrom of the vicissitudes of fate. And this is something that we, that we find a lot in all of these transmissions. They are sometimes related to a particular language. So when we think about, for example, esoteric Christianity, the language of esoteric Christianity is Latin. So if you want to study uh, the exorcist ritual of um, Christian priests, you need to read the Ritual Romanum. And it's, well, unless you, you get a, a, an English copy that does exist nowadays, that transmission would have been kept in Latin and you would have to learn Latin. So in the medieval times, very few people knew Latin and wh whomever studied Latin had access to this esoteric knowledge. In the same case, um, Sanskrit was the esoteric language by excellence of India that not only uh, preserved the tantras in the Hindu tradition, but also the tantras of the Buddhist uh, tradition. So it seems to me that the biggest impact in keeping these traditions um, alive, or basically that the fact that they survived to our days has to do with this, with secrecy, with testing the students that are about to receive this, this transmission, and to the strain of a particular language in which the uh, practice is being affected. So if I may, I can do a comparison of four different esoteric aspects. We could talk about uh, Judaism, and the Torah has suffered various uh, translations and retranslations, and even the Torah itself was not um, a, the, the book of the Torah as we know it now, and the selection of the book, which is particular, because it, it is a particular selection. When I think it was in the um, second or third century um, after Christ that the Torah was uh, put together, some books made it, to the Torah and some books didn't. For example, the books of Enoch are left out. In the same case, Christianity, after the Second Council of Nicaea, they chose some books to belong to the Bible and some other books they called apocryphal. So those are out. And both 
um, the knowledge of Hebrew is fundamental for both the Merkava and the Kabbalistic traditions. The knowledge of Latin is fundamental for any esoteric um, Christian understanding. The same happens in uh, Tantra, both in Hindu and Buddhist uh, Tantra, which the knowledge of Sanskrit by the a technique of mantra is fundamental to bring these practices into effect. And finally, I would say that the same happens in shamanism because the teacher has to test the student, has to really trust that the student uh, is someone who is qualified, capable, and has been chosen by powers beyond both the teacher and the student. And the transmission is given in the form of songs. And these songs are in the particular language that this transmission is coming from. So you can receive songs from the Shipibo tradition called Ikaros, or you can receive songs from the Quechua tradition, sometimes Ikaros, sometimes called Mariris, and etc., etc., etc. So it seems to be that the, the, the strongest um, candidates for those aspects that allowed these lineages to uh, come in tour times are secrecy, testing the people that want to enter the lineage, and to have a lineage of transmission of a particular language. Uh, sometimes in the form of songs, sometimes in the form of prayer, sometimes in the form of mantra. But in the same case as the Ikaros are the sacred voice of shamanism, or, or Amazonian shamanism in the same way that mantra is the sacred voice in the Hindu and Buddhist tradition, and in the same way that ancient Hebrew and its Kabbalistic interactions are the sacred voice in Judaism. Without studying any of these, one cannot say that one belongs to that esoteric lineage. And for one to be able to say this, one does need to put in a lot of work to be tested, allow oneself to be tested, triumph over these um, challenges, and eventually maintain the same level of secrecy that one's teachers imparted to you. And I guess at some point later, send or convey the tradition or the secrecy to the next generation, and so on. Yes, exactly. Without that, the tradition would die. One even has the... Um, let's call it the responsibility, to pass it on. These, these traditions are not something that we endeavor to receive, to keep them for ourselves. But at some point, by the very act of receiving it, one, one becomes a link in the transmission. So it's, it's something very sad that any, any person that has mastered any technique that can be truthfully called a master would die without any disciples because that means that that lineage is broken. And there have been so many broken lineages in this earth. Actually, there are very few that, we, that have actually survived. Most lineages of transmission did not survive. The transmission and the esoteric knowledge of the Essenes did not survive, neither did that of the early Gnostics, etc., etc. So if we really think about it, we have lost most of the spiritual practices that this world has brought forth. However, that might not need to disillusion us because still there are some veritable ancient and fantastic lineages of transmission that we still can receive. Mm. Okay, now this is a super silly question, 
but how does a, a, um, a Luke Skywalker becomes a shaman in this situation? We have a Padawan, right? Someone who would like to, or who is called to, or I don't know, is, is this person he or she called to, or, or a shaman points them out, or what happens? How, how do we become shamans? That's, that's a very interesting question. Um, there are multiple stories that I can tell you to break the fixation that there is any one way that this thing happens, right? So, for example, you have a saint from last century, uh, and uh, he was not a saint. He was just a, a very, uh, we could say, spiritual person. And then he went... Um, to a woman, this woman was called Hazrat Babajan, and this woman, which was a very powerful yogi, she kissed him in the forehead, and that completely awakened him into the path. And eventually, that person became Meher Baba. Um, or we, for example, just to use your your very example, Luke Skywalker had in his very life the circumstances to be part of the cosmic battle that was happening, right? And even though Star Wars is a movie, it also carries a lot of archetypes in the path that can be used as examples. So if the question is, how is one to get into this path? I really don't know. I can't tell because I know shaman from many walks of life and they all came into this path in different ways. One thing that I can attest to is that to become a shaman, one needs to put a lot of effort. One needs eventually to become disillusioned with the idea of becoming anything. And finally, one has to be chosen by powers that transcend both the student and the a master. So it's not so much that a master will point you out and say, you have the qualities, come here, I'll teach you. That can happen. But perhaps it's not just the master who is doing this. Perhaps it's this transcendental force producing this circumstance for the student to enter the path. Or it can be something as simple as Hazrat Babajan's kiss. Or it can be something that leads a person to receive this knowledge, not so much by any stretch of desire or attempt towards omnipotency, because this happens a lot, no? We, we want to understand the world. We want to find truth. In a way, we want to sit in the throne of heaven. We want to know all. We want to find that ultimate truth and sit in that throne. And in the beginning, that seems like a very knowable uh, thing to do. But somehow in the middle, that desire begins to be seen as what it is, a desire. And that desire is somewhat corrupted and it has been um, it has veiled this very subtle aspect of arrogance which is that in the pursuit of truth one is trying to sit in the throne of heaven and at some point one also has to agree um, with reality which is that we are not meant to know everything we are not meant to inherit all spiritual doctrines we are just meant to walk the life that we are meant to walk so if the only way to get into shamanism is walking the life that you're meant to walk, there is no particular set of steps that I could mention. 
um, it is not as if this is a university. You know, a university can give a curriculum of classes and say, well, first year you do this, this, and this, and in four years you end up and you're an engineer. That does not happen in shamanism. That does not happen in Buddhism. That does not happen in, well, maybe it happens in the church. I, I actually don't know. Um, certified priests probably at this time yes well things like that do exist of course there are corrupted branches of shamanism there are corrupted branches of christianity buddhism etc i'm sure there are some people that are selling uh, shamanic uh, titles or certifications that is worth nothing absolutely nothing and in fact to feel any sense of safety or of accomplishment by any title is Uh, opposed to the very self-discovery that these particular paths seek to inspire. Um, so it's a very complicated question. I know that the people that are listening to this talk right now are going like, well, you know, I wanted to enter this path, but you're not giving me any any way to do that. So no, this is this is good because what I wanted to, uh, to point out is that I also know several shamans, like you said, they come from all walks of life. The stories that you're bringing right now are complementing other ones that I had because um, there is no university, like you said, there is no curriculum for this or path. Now, what I wanted to, to ask or to even move the conversation a little bit is that if it doesn't matter how someone has arrived to the to the path or started the path, what are they, the, the ways that a shaman in his or her own way starts getting tested? That's a good question. Um, one is tested by the path and by the teacher. So for example, in shamanism, one learns a lot from the plants and from nature and from the animals and from the places that one visit and from sacred stones and from pilgrimage. And one is tested by these things, of course. Every pilgrimage is a test. Uh, surviving in the jungle is a test, etc. But the most important aspect that is constantly testing us is that of our own teacher. Because the teacher is there not so much to teach. Actually, that's a, a huge, um, sometimes it's a misunderstanding. But the teacher is not so much there to teach. The teacher is there to keep your ego in check and to be able, the teacher is someone that we give the power over us for them to be able to stick the finger on a wound. Now, if anyone else, if I have a wound and you come and you put your finger in my wound, I will immediately become defensive. No. So if any person from any walks of life comes to you and says, well, you shouldn't do this, you should do this or that, um, you immediately become defensive and you go like, well, no, that's you. I do what I want, etc., etc." So we never find we, we are never in a teachable um, place because we are always keeping the defenses of our ego with our guard up. So the teacher is someone towards whom we lower that guard and we allow them this uh, sacred opportunity, which is for them to point out our limitations and for us to work on those limitations in um, a compassionate, sometimes also a wrathful manner. So the teacher is fundamental. As much as one can learn from plants, anyone that is learning from plants but does not have the vital 
a, and very much necessary aspect of a teacher to keep their ego in check will eventually run into trouble. Um, mm. So that is fundamental. If I can give any universal um, advice would be this. If you're interested in any path, the first thing you want to do is find a teacher. And after you find a teacher, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are various stages of one's relation with a teacher. The first stage is to test the teacher. We are not meant to merely go to anyone that presents himself, whether they be or not, as a teacher and take them as they come, but we are meant to test the teacher. Once we test the teacher, we listen to the teacher. And thirdly, we become imitating the teacher. And fourthly, the imitation has dissolved and we ourselves have become a teacher. So mm -hmm. for that to happen, even in Tibetan Buddhism, I remember that um, Jigmet Limpa, a great yogi of the, I think, 18th century, wrote, or was it Dilgo Rinpoche? I don't know, but anyway, it doesn't matter in Buddhism because you know, truth is universal. But in their case, they said that the most valuable pith instruction is the one that brings your limitations to the light. So whenever a teacher tells you something that you don't want to hear, that is the instruction you have to heed the most. And that is actually the teacher's blessing and compassion. But nowadays, that's very hard to do. It's very hard. Um, about, I don't know, not even 200 years ago, but for, for the whole um, um, ancient times, let's say that you wanted to be a shoemaker and you wanted to be the best shoemaker. What you would, what you would do would be finding the best shoemaker, knocking on his door, bowing uh, on his door and say, please, can I be taken as an apprentice? I will do everything. I don't need pay. I just want to learn. Right. And the shoemaker might close the door and say, no, go away. I have no need of uh, assistance, etc. And you still have to remain at that doorstep and keep knocking without food under the rain. And this same metaphor applies for Zen Buddhist monasteries as for some aspects in shamanism. But we do not have. And when I mean we, I mean society as it's being conformed nowadays. People don't have the level of faith. Um, to do something like this. So instead of testing a teacher and completely allowing ourselves to walk the path and to really be able to surrender our willpower and put it in the hands of somebody else, we always want to be in control. And that's very, that's very difficult. That, in a way, is an obstacle towards the purity of the transmission lineage. Because we say, oh, I'll listen to you as long as I'm doing what I want. But as, mm. when things get difficult, uh, I, will, I will choose to go when I want to. And those are the most important challenges. And these challenges, a student has to pass one, two times, three times, maybe more. Mm. So there are many times in which the student will feel that, that the teacher is is being mean to them or that they need to go or that there is someone even more powerful. That's a very complicated way of seeing things and say, oh, well, I've learned enough from you. I'm going out with this other person. And we might end up being what Chogyang Trungpa, the great um, a Tibetan Buddhist master that 
was one of the first ones in building temples in the States, uh, talked about when he was pointing out people's, and particularly our contemporary age, uh, spiritual materialism. So as long as you are taking the shots, as long as you go to a teacher and you listen, but you reserve for yourself the ultimate um, decision whether to follow or not, you don't have a teacher. A teacher is someone towards whom you have completely surrendered your willpower. That surrendering of the willpower does not need to last forever, but it does need to last for the period of time until your ego is sufficiently humiliated and debased until you see it for what it is, a limitation. And we cease to keep our the guard of our ego up and we bring it down. And at that moment, we truly become teachable. Mm. And that is the beginning. <laughs> that is the beginning. <laughs> exactly. You said, you said it right. That is the beginning. I mean, you have not learned anything until you did that. But once you, wow. once you learn how to do that, the path goes really fast. And you would be surprised how much knowledge and wisdom you can absorb when you don't have your egoic narrative trying to analyze and trying to keep for itself the ultimate truth. It is very much mm. like with judging teachers. Um, some people mm. say, my teacher is enlightened. You know, your teacher is not enlightened. This person is enlightened. But if we analyze this very um, statement, this would make us the judge of the enlightened. This would make us even more powerful than the enlightened. We are the one that appoint them. So it is highly ludicrous to keep this attitude. And instead of looking for the teacher with the ultimate power or for an enlightened being that, in effect, we do not know whether they are or not, we go back to the second question that you asked, which was about preference. And I always recommend people to go with their preference. This is very much like listening to music. If you Let's say that you had never listened to any music at all. And I tell you, okay, there are... 10,000 trillion songs, pick one. And you're suddenly baffled because you don't know which step to take because there are infinite steps. No, it's kind of like if you would bring uh, an Australian Aborigine to a supermarket in the States right. and you tell yeah. them, okay, pick what you're going to have tonight for food. <laughs> you have no idea. So preference is something that works with our own condition. So if you if if this aborigine says, well, for example, I like fish, well, then you go to the fish section and that's very easy. Right. Um, if with a teacher, you feel like you like this person, uh, liking a person is not does not mean that you think that he's enlightened or because he's more similar to you. He is better than everyone else. No. But what it does present is that there is a link of simil similitude or similarity that you can work with. And it means also that communication will be smoother. So I recommend people always to work with preference. If you enter Tibetan Buddhism, you pick a teacher that you like. And if you have to eventually choose a particular deity to work with, you go with one that resounds more with you. If you are going to Andean Amazonian shamanism and you say, well, what songs am I going to know first? <clears throat> you, you go with the songs that you like, 
right? So there's a a very good answer in this path. Whenever one asks a teacher, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, A very uh, universal answer would be do whatever works for you, right? So if you ask a teacher, should I do this mantra slowly or quickly or sonorous or mumbling? There are some mantras that, of course, have their particular forms of being um, uh, said or vibrated. But the main answer would be just do what works, you know, do what works for you. Go by your preference. So in the same way that we choose music that we like and we want to sing music that we are connected to and that we even sing better songs that have any connection with us, in the same way we will traverse quick, quicker and better any path that we have any foundation of preference with beforehand. Hmm. That makes sense. You know, this part was super funny because you said an aborigine that goes to the U.S. to a supermarket. Guess what? I was the Bolivian aborigine trying to find peanut butter. That's <laughs> it. Uh, brother, the same happened to me. I have I use that example because whenever I enter American supermarkets, I have no idea what to get. I mean, I I need a you know a little fruit shop or a vegetable shop, but sometimes man, when when man is crowded by options, we lose the power of choosing rightly. Why? Because we are obnubilated by the by, by the amount of choice possible. And whenever that happens, one thing that we have to remind ourselves of is to go with what works. Uh, makes sense. And it, that is also called a um, um, paradox of choice. I'm trying to find out the, the name of the author of that one. Now, let, we're going to get back to this point. And I'm, I'm starting to realize how these things are going to get connected. So the first question that I have is, what makes shamanism a practical exercise or what makes it so practical compared to the theoretical of religion well first of all shamanism is absolutely practical uh, and in this respect is different from any other um, tradition and i think that this is also why we mostly call and in amazonian shamanism Uh, shamanism as a whole. Even though the word is Siberian and there are other aspects of shamanism around the world, one thing that stands out in and in Amazonian shamanism is that it doesn't have a fixated mythology. So if you go to Christianity, Christianity has its myth, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and this word became It became incarnate to liberate the souls of sentient beings. In Buddhism, you have also the myth of the Buddha. You know, there was this prince that got disillusioned with life, pursued many different practices, eventually went into himself and became enlightened. And so the same we have in Islam, the same we have all every religion in a way has its cosmology and its mythology. And even though shamanism of course that it has its cosmology and of course that it has its uh, mythology shamanism does not have a fixated cosmology or mythology this means that we can always say what is judaism and what is not 
I mean, even though there are many factions of Judaism that are fighting between each other, there are many factions of Christianity that are fighting between each other. Actually, there are more things in which they would agree than in which they would disagree. So, for example, both Pentecostals and and, uh, Catholics would agree that uh, Christ is the right hand of God sent into the world to purify the sins of mankind. And they would bicker and fight between lesser uh, aspects, perhaps, right? Mm -hmm. So this happens because there is a foundational text. And we can always go to the Bible. We can interpret the the Bible in different ways, but there's still a Bible. In shamanism, there's no Bible. Mm -hmm. And you can go to the Amazon and you can go with one tribe and ask, what is the foundational myth of your tribe? And they will tell you one myth. And then you'll go like, oh, okay, this is... This is shamanism. It all comes from this myth. And then you go to another um, tribe and they tell you another myth. So there, this idea of the fixation of truth that happens in other religions, shamanism does not have it. And this is the main difference between mythology and religion. Even though all religion comes from mythology and eventually became fixated by the pressure of literature, so to say... Shamanism, by having no sacred book, leaves the question of truth open. And a myth is not supposed to be true or untrue. A myth is supposed to create an effect. It doesn't matter if the story of the uh, Shuar peoples, Adam and Eve, called uh, Kametsa and Naroe, is real or not. We're not trying to get into history the important thing is what effect does, does this story produce in the hearer? So in the same way, I would say that shamanism goes also with what works. And shamanism has very different myths. And the, these myths have to do with the various different traditions and societies that uh, brought them forth. However, there is no one myth. And this is also the reason why nobody can tell you what shamanism really is. Because even though I have my way of telling you what shamanism is, I would never say this is what shamanism is. I'm only saying this is what I feel shamanism is, right? Mm. So by not having a book, it forces people to take the humble position of speaking from their own experience. Whereas when we're talking about mythology, we have to say things like Zeus was the god of lightning and this you know is not this is not up for discussion in shamanism everything is up for discussion because it doesn't really matter what theory or theoretical framework we have to understand what we're doing in fact shamanism does not have this for example you need uh, to understand the myth of the christ and you need to understand the one particular myth of the whole Christian cosmology, which is the Last Supper, if you are to take the Eucharist. Because the Eucharist is the transubstantiation of the body of Christ in that moment in the church, and you are, it's a ritual that is reenacting um, the moment in which Christ parted the bread and said, This is my body, and took the wine and said, This is my blood. So this is a very good example of showing how a ritual <clears throat> comes is related to mythology. However, for any person to undergo um, a, 
For example, an ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazonian tradition, you do not need to be acquainted with any myth. You do need to be acquainted with the myth of the Last Supper to do the ritual of the Eucharist, right? But you do not need the foundation of any myth before to before you do any of the uh, spiritual practices of Andean Amazonian shamanism. So in uh, Andean Amazonian shamanism, it is very particular that we break the duality between the egg and the chicken. In this case, we do choose one, and it begins with ritual. Mythology comes from the plant itself, and you can receive a vision of the beginning of the world, and that vision will not necessarily be um, proven wrong or right by myself having any other vision. That means that your vision is the condition of your mind, and my vision is the condition of my mind. So in shamanism, there is very little room for... um, the clash of ideologies. Different shaman from different ideologies with different mythology, with different rituals can all come together and practice together, which is something that is very rare and you will rarely find it in other traditions, right? It's very rare that, you know, Catholics go to Pentecostal churches or even Theravada Buddhist monks practice uh, Tibetan Tantra. This does not happen. Even though they have the first, the same original myth, they have um, differences along the way uh, and they have different uh, myths that they reenact in their ritual. However, Mm. shamanism does not have that. So you are not meant to know anything before you step into the path. In fact, you begin to understand the cosmology that surrounds this practice, the practice of shamanism, by doing it. Whereas every other path, you would need to be acquainted with the foundations, whether that is the Quran or the Sutras or the Guru Granth Sabji or the Lao Tzu, Tao Te Ching, you know, anything else. So that, that is very particular of shamanism. It is a non-theoretical no. transmission. Now, this is good entry to, we started already talking about uh, plant medicines. So are, so how does, how do plant medicine for people that are not aware of uh, how they are used or what is the context around this and how they're used inside of shamanic practices? How, how do they relate? I will explain this in a, in a shamanic fashion because shamanism is not only uh, the practice, uh, but every tradition has its its way of of explaining the world, right? So even though shamanism does not fixate it in any sort of way, I will give you a somewhat shamanic explanation that might not be entirely rational, uh, but it does have its own uh, inner consistency. So let's say that you want to get in contact with the spirit of an animal. Let's say that you want to get into contact with the spirit of a jaguar, right? I, I am, for example, sitting right now in um, in one of my, uh, I would call, totemic animals with which I've had a, a relationship. So how how does one go about this? First thing, we receive the name. The name is the first and foremost, right? So the name is Jaguar, let's say. 
Secondly, we need to understand its form, right? So we say, okay, the jaguar is <clears throat> a big cat. It is an apex predator in the jungle. It has spots. It lives, it lives mostly at night. It hunts at night. It sleeps in the trees, etc., etc. So not just identifying the animal by its shape, right? But its form involves all the ways in which that shape moves. So for example, the jaguar is a great swimmer, is a great runner, and it can climb trees. All of this relates to its form. Then thirdly, we would need to have a personal experience. And to get to that personal experience, we need to haunt the jaguar. And I mean, I say haunt, not hunt. Uh, and what do I mean by haunting? Haunting is becoming the jaguar. You are never going to see a jaguar in the jungle unless you become a jaguar. There is no way that you will be walking through the jungle and you will just surprise a jaguar and the jaguar will go like, oh my God, I was here doing my things and now you appeared. That does not happen. The jaguar is the king of the jungle and is completely aware of everything is happening. And if he doesn't want you to see him, you won't see him. The only way in which you can get to see him is if you no longer are a person. The only way that you can see a jaguar is if you become a jaguar. So that means that you have to live at night, you have to be awake all night, we have to sleep during the day. You have to abandon the a human form, and by this I, I mean many things of a shamanic, perhaps esoteric understanding, but I also mean things like not smelling like a person anymore. Because if you smell like a person, you will never get close to it. However, if you undergo particular diets to clean the toxins of your body, you will no longer give a human smell and you might have a chance of um, passing unperceived and eventually meeting the jaguar. So to be able to haunt a jaguar, you have to become a jaguar. We ha you have to become somewhat of a jaguar ghost. And eventually, after pursuing this activity of becoming a jaguar, you might eventually see a jaguar face to face. And once you see a jaguar, that is a very powerful spiritual encounter, which transforms your being and arguably also that of the jaguar. And there's a, a very interesting um, energetic symbiosis that happens between the two. So I began with this explanation not to go straight head first into plants, but to make an analogy. So in the same way, if you want to be acquainted with the spirit of a plant. How do you do it? You do it the same way as you do the jaguar. First, you need to know its name, right? So if we were in the jungle and we were talking about ayahuasca, for example, I would first, I will tell you the name ayahuasca. And then I tell you about its form. I tell you about its leaf. I tell you about that it's a it's a, a liana. I don't know how to say it in English. Like, a vine? A vine, exactly. Um, and then we would go out into the jungle and you would have to find this, this medicine, right? You would have to find it by yourself. You need to know its leaf. You need to know to recognize it. And this is analogous to the haunting of the jaguar in order to go into the jungle. And the, the, the vine needs to present itself to you. It is not as mm -hmm. if 
you have to survey parts of the jungle and randomly you'll find one. That is not the foundation upon which shamanism is built on. The foundation of shamanism is that of ascribing a spirit to everything. So in shamanism, everything has a spirit and you will not find an ayahuasca vine unless she is offering herself to you. And after you do that, you need to know how to cook it. And eventually, just like the fourth aspect of um, meeting the uh, jaguar spirit is having an encounter with a jaguar, in the same way, the final aspect of this medicine, from a very purely ancestral shamanic point of view, is to undergo all of this and eventually drinking the plant, absorbing the plant so that this being is with you and you can feel its effects. Nowadays, people don't need to um, know the form of the plant or where does it come from. They don't even need to go into the jungle and seek for it. Um, however, if one is serious about this path, at some point to develop a very powerful spiritual link with this medicine, one would try to do things in the manner that I just described. And this is not only valid for ayahuasca, it's valid for all plants. This is not only valid for the jaguar, this is valid for all animals. And in fact, it's also valid for stones. You can do the same with the sacred stones or sacred um, places in the world in which you pilgrimage to it. And the very pilgrimage itself is like haunting the rock, right? And you, we also do it with people. We are constantly absorbing people, right? Somebody tells you about this friend and, and the first thing they say is the name. And then they tell you where does it come from? Where, I, what does he work in? Uh, and then you go like, oh, okay, I might want to meet this person. And you go to any social encounter and you finally meet this, that person. And then you receive the impact of this person's energy and you assimilate it with the, your very uh, pre-existent um, belief foundation. And I mean this in the case of any person or friend that you might meet, but it's also the same way in which we would absorb a teacher. You first need a name then a form of his tradition or where he is or whatever, then is the haunting, which is uh, imitating or going to find this teacher and eventually is having a profound heart-to-heart -heart contact. So I think that in this path, we diet many things. The word diet is very important in shamanism. A diet, to diet something is to absorb it purely. Uh, and we say diet... Because when you want to absorb something, you want to be in such a focused state of mind that other perceptions do not distract you. Let's say that if I was having this conversation with you, but I am also doing a bunch of other stuff, I'm distracted. I'm not really getting a heart-to-heart -heart connection. So in order for myself to completely fall into whatever energy I am looking for, whether it is the, the energy of a stone, a plant, an animal, or a person, the manner of absorbing this energy is the same. And even though we say that we diet plants, in the same way we can say that we diet stones, animals, and teachers. Hmm. In that regard, then... What I'm hearing is that plants are our teachers. 
plants are teaching us something. A hundred percent. I mean, the only distinction that I can make between the four elements I just told you, it is that of the, their elements. So they are related to air, water, earth, and fire. I would say that haunting, not haunting, right? Let's just, let's call it absorbing. Um, but if you want to absorb an animal, that animal, to absorb that animal is to fall into the category of air. Because just by sight, something happens. I did not hunt a jaguar. I did not kill a jaguar. I did not eat a jaguar. But I saw one and just the sight was changed me. So the transmission through the eyes has to do with air. Now with plants is not is not enough only to um, to see them. We also need to drink them. So this is related to the air um, aspect of uh, the the wheel of the elements, right? So even though you don't need um, to drink an animal, but just by its sight something can happen, and and the animal can come to you in dreams. Um, we do need to drink the plants to experience their spirit in us. So they're related to water. Uh, thirdly, when we're talking about stones, stones are, of course, related to the element of earth. And sometimes to even get to a particular sacred stone, one has to walk a lot through a, you know, a pilgrimage or maybe climb a mountain. Or um, uh, one has to be very conscious of one's surroundings. And again, the stone is a rock. So the, we drink plants, we see animals, but it is fundamental to touch stones. At the, mm. at the moment that we touch them, something, something happens. The spirit of the stone can be mm. truly revealed to us. And <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, I have and, a stone here that was given. Uh, and fourthly, I would say that absorbing or dieting teachers falls into the category of fire because we not we don't need to merely see the teacher we don't need to drink the teacher we don't necessarily need to um touch the teacher but we need to be close to the teacher's fire we need to listen to imitate and to live with them right and and the the aspect of verbal knowledge is something that is is out of the category of plants, rocks, or animals, right? And fire is also related to our discursive capacity in the same way that perhaps Terence McKenna believed this and many other traditions of the world, um, Aboriginal traditions of the world, also believed that fire gave us the capacity to speak. In the same case, a teacher, one engages a teacher with the mind, which the fire comes to represent. So you said that, you know, plants are also teachers. Yes, but in a way, teachers are also plants. So mm. we can't say who came first. We can only say, or at least from a shamanic point of view, right? Uh, um, there are other paths that don't diet rocks. They don't diet plants and they don't diet animals. Although this is not entirely true because, for example, even in Buddhism, you circumambulate stupas. And stupas are like the sacred stones of Buddhism. And in Islam, you go once a, once in a lifetime at least to the Mecca. 
etc., uh, etc. Et right? And and we do drink wine in the Eucharist, and we do keep symbols of the Christ or the Buddhas or etc. So so there there are ways in which religion has transformed this um, wheel of the elements by which we learn of nature around us into a purely humane endeavor. Mm. So the stupa is a representation of the mind of Buddha and etc. etc. And all traditions, everything has become sort of, I would say, homocentric, right? Because mm. it, um, it relates to the human condition. But we have forgotten also that there are ways to speak to plants. There are ways to be friends mm. with stones. There are ways to have a relationship with animals that perhaps are living as my jaguar is living, you know, thousands of kilometers away. There is a way mm. to do this. So I would say that this is another aspect which appears to be foundational in shamanism and that instead of it being um, a something that came after religion, apparently this was the main way of doing things. And then eventually we transformed animal stones and plants into something more humane. So mm. we can talk, for example, of the Holy Grail and drinking the water of life in Christianity, but no one would believe that there is a plant that literally has, you know, life and can give you visions mm. which is the same thing that the holy grail is supposed to do so mm. it seems that religion has undermined a little bit of our connection with the other elements and has made everything homocentric and the mm. the i would say bringing down this illusion of homocentricity is a fundam fundamental aspect in shamanic training to abandon this idea that man is the center of the universe and everything is made for us. Um, I mean, the garden of reality was made for us in a way, but we are its guardians. We are not here to abuse and to take whatever we want. And, and, and some of the things <clears throat> that the religious um, framework has allowed is this separation between man and nature uh, by turning the other elements into something human and relatable to in a human dimension instead of actually going to the jungle or the desert or the mountains and experiencing nature from a first-hand uh, mm. perspective. Which we are part of the nature in the first place. Is remembering probably that we are part of it, like you said. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, as long as it's very, you, we can always look for teachers in people, of course. But if we fail to see the teachers in everything, the, everything that surrounds us, then our view will be highly limited. Mm. Also, what is the teacher that has passed the test of time? Humans are just a fraction here of the time in the planet. There are ancient organisms that have passed the test of time and if we're not looking for learning from them then we're making ourselves a disservice at some point well that's the same thing that i was saying before with uh, 
the, the arrogance that one can be ushered into by disregarding the possibility of standing into in the shoulders of giants. As you say, if, if the history of the world was a clock, humanity, it's only its last minute or seconds, you know? Right. And if we could learn from organisms that are older than us, uh, that would give us a lot. You know, studying, for example, the way in which my mushroom mycelium uh, spreads, we are finding incredible things that of, of parts of the kingdoms of life, the five kingdoms of life that we have completely disregarded because we didn't understand them. Even nowadays, we still fail um, incredibly at understanding mushrooms. The more you study mycology, the more you understand that we know nothing. Uh, and it's a very mysterious undertaking. <clears throat> so we have, yeah. I think that we have made everything uh, into this homocentric idea because it's easier to understand what we can relate to. But the, also the problem is that we have forgotten how to speak to nature. If we only believe that you can speak to other human beings, then the vessel of your communication is highly limited. But if you have opened ways of speaking with other beings, with plants, with animals, with stones, and with spirits, uh, then you are in a constant conversation. That is what the epitome of the shaman is to me, is this person in the jungle or in the mountains, wherever he is, but he is completely surrounded and nourished and in a constant conversation with nature. And we have lost that. We have lost it mostly by this... Um, a insistence with a homogenization of reality given by scripture. And I love literature and I've studied most of the religious scriptures that I could get a hold of. But once you begin walking the path of shamanism, you understand that there has been a book that hitherto has not been opened. And that is the book of nature. To be able to open and read the book of nature is another phrase that I would use as a description of what shamanism is. What shamanism is, is learning to read the book of nature. Hmm. How you diet plants. What plants are dieted? What are the usages of those ones? And let's talk, let's do a brief overview of them, please. I know maybe a hundred plants. My teachers perhaps know a thousand and there are... I would Google it now, but I don't know how many, many millions of species in the Amazon and all of them have something to say. All of them. We can make a distinction between psychoactive plants and non-psychoactive plants. And sometimes we call the psychoactive ones um, uh, teacher plants and the other ones maybe master plants. But really, one has to find a way of learning from everything. There is a, a story in Zen Buddhism in which a master asked his student to go out and find a plant that, that had no use. And the student came back after a year and said, I did not find any plant that has no use. And this is also true in shamanism. So there are many plants that I don't know how to use them. There are many plants that I have not dieted. Um, and I've dieted plants that are administered in very different fashions. There are plants that heal the body, right? So, for example, if you cut yourself um, with a branch, 
you can apply sangre de grado, and sangre de grado will allow this the cicatrix to heal better. In the same way, we can also hurt ourselves in the mind. So instead of applying the balm in the physical body, we apply it in the mind, and the application of that, the balm is the drinking the plant, and the application is the ritual. Um, but there are many plants in many ways of doing these things. You have plants like oje, which you drink and it makes you purge, it makes you vomit, it also makes you go to the bathroom and it completely scrapes the wall of the stomach. You can heal yourself from parasites or from other diseases. Uh, and so this is not a plant that produces any psychoactive function. No, it does not give visions, nothing like this, but it does have healing properties. And you can relate to this plant uh, and you can relate to its spirit. Mm -hmm. So there are plants for everything. There are plants to make you cry. There are plants to make you laugh. There are plants to get you grounded. There are plants to make you airy. There are, there's a, a huge pharmacopoeia. Uh, let's call it, you know, we can call uh, the Amazon jungle uh, the biggest pharmacy in the world. And the only people that remain with the knowledge of what each plant is for are the native traditions, of which I am a um, lousy student because I know some plants, but under no respect, I am an authority on the uh, different plants that exist in the Amazon. If I were to diet a new plant, I would ask my teachers or something like this. So to answer your question, I mean, what plants are there? There are so many. Uh, I have dieted maybe 40, 45 plants of which I consider to have a relationship with their spirits. Um, but... I don't feel I am even an authority in this because there are million plants. And I don't think anyone is an authority in this because who can ever know a million plants? We can only know it by a collective um, storage. And the collective storage are the myths, the transmissions, and the diversity of lineages that exist. If we would have only one lineage, then our knowledge would be circumscribed to one place and to a bunch of plants only. But if you scope the whole area of the Amazon basin, we understand also that it is fundamental to have different lineages because no one person could know all plants. But instead, we can know this from a collective point of view. Basically, it's a collective uh, effort for research the plants and also transmit the knowledge um, from their location, from their own experience to their further generations. Exactly. Now, let's go specifically into ayahuasca, which is one of the most trendy topics, I would say, here, or maybe ayahuasca, maybe uh, San Pedro or mescaline, which, um, correct me if I'm wrong, are these two of the most used in shamanic uh, ways or are they other ones that I know that you have said that there are hundreds of even thousands yeah i mean from from my perspective i can tell you what i use most to treat people or what my teachers or the lineages i've inherited use but we cannot say what is the plant that is used most because if you go to africa some tribes will say iboga 
if you go to Siberia, they will say Amanita muscaria, which is a mushroom. Maybe if you go to Celtic Druids, they will uh, speak about the um, uh, mm. golden cap mushrooms or the Mayans. Even I don't think the, if, well, we don't have any uh, any true line of surviving transmission from the Mayans, but we do have some elements that we know and they they had a huge panoply and, uh, and spectrum of plants that they were related to. So they used cacao bean was sacred to them and they used it as money. Um, the sacred mushrooms they called teonanacatl or the food of the gods. They used oliloki and they even went to the extent of bringing in plants from other places um, mm. because there are shaman that we have found and ancestral shaman that have been buried with plants uh, like ayahuasca and San Pedro in the same tomb. And ayahuasca and San Pedro grow in completely different conditions. So there was um, lit, uh, um, a trade route of medicines and medicines flew all across the ancient times. I am talking only from the American point of view, but the same we can say in Asia, in um, Asia Minor, in the Mediterranean, etc. Plants have always been part of the uh, evolution of a human being, and you can find them more often than not in every myth. In this case, so you mentioned that you use a few of them more often than others. Which ones are those ones that you use to heal, to help heal people? Well, I, I wouldn't say that I heal. I accompany the healing process. The plant is the one that heals. But also the plant, if it's a psychoactive substance, it needs to be applied with a ritual. In the same case that in order to, apply, to heal um, a cut, you need to put the sangre de grado in the wound and not scrub it in your hair, right? Um, in the same way, the plant needs to be applied to the mind and the application of the plant in the mind is the ritual. So it is impossible to separate ritual and medicine. If you only take the medicine, it can be dangerous and it cannot be healing. And if you only do the ritual, it, it is missing its secret ingredient. So ritual and medicine go hand in hand. Uh, in this case, I have trained in my life mostly with ayahuasca, a wachuma, which is the Quechua name of the San Pedro cactus, and with the sacred mushrooms that I call teonanacatl um, because of their Mayan uh, lineage. So these are the three uh, medicines that I use the most, but also we can work with other plants, preferably under a retreat fashion. Um, and other plants can be taken to help the process of assimilation uh, of uh, plants like ayahuasca. If you do a long diet with ayahuasca, you will be taking other plants in the jungle, um, etc., etc. So even if I can, I would say that ayahuasca, wachuma, and tenanacatl are the three main medicines I work with. Um, the coca leaf and uh, the tobacco plant are always somewhat present in every ritual. And there are medicines uh, from the animal, the fungal, and the plant kingdoms. Uh, in animal, um, for example, the Nordic fish Sarpa Sarpa uh, contains LSD and was used by Vikings. 
Um, a, there is a toad called Bufalvarius and a um, frog called um, Philomedusa bicolor, which is called Cambo. Uh, with mushrooms, you have Amanita muscaria and a very wide range of uh, psilocybin mushrooms. And in the plant kingdom, you have very other, uh, various other plants like, I don't know, the bobinsana, chiriksanango, toema, pajo, tajibo, wild daga, iboga, etc., etc. Right? So this is a very, very wide um, subject. Um, but instead of getting, our, uh, getting ourselves ahead of ourselves uh, and try to collect many names, it is better not to have any of these in the mind and work with the plants or with whatever spirit we're working with one by one and to fully undergo the, the process of um, name, form, haunting and assimilation that I mentioned uh, instead of just collecting names because that's another danger. It's the, the, the danger of confusing information with wisdom. And you can, you maybe, there are some people that can call, name many plants but maybe they don't know them as well. And I, who don't know many plants, if I compare myself to my teachers, um, I have at least tried to develop uh, a deep relationship with each of these instead of trying to know many superficially. Wow, this is, like you said, a completely vast subject. I, I'm still thinking that we will have to get a third episode together to go on each one of those ones in, in essence. Nevertheless, I this is fascinating what that we have gone into. What is shamanism? What is religion? How they're related? How a shaman gets tested or tests a teacher? So this is super, super cool. Is there any other angle that you would like to touch in the few minutes that we have from the conversation that we let me see. I mean, if 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 there is a response from people and people have other questions, uh, I not only enjoy very much your questions, but if your audience has any questions and you want to bring them forth for next time, I think that in the same way that we've been talking about going with what works, we also want to tackle the questions that are present. Um, so I would love I I love our sessions, and if there are questions from your audience that they ask you that they may, might want to ask me, I'm, I, I, I am here to serve. Um, if we want to end this conversation with anything that I would like to say is that <clears throat> perhaps we have been touching this subject, uh, not from an academic perspective, but perhaps from um, an intellectual one, right? Um, and it's important for your audience to understand that this is a path that is meant to be walked. It's not so much a story that one is told, but a story that one uh, participates in. And everyone of, to, to walk a shamanic path is to belong in your story and to make nature part of the landscape uh, in which this story is being unfolded. Um, so you began with a, a beautiful uh, introduction of my person, which, although it's true, I, I, I felt like, oh, that's, that's a little bit a lot. 
and I don't. I just don't want to. Don't. I would not want people to think that I am just um, uh, an um, an intellectual or an anthropologist of all of these traditions, but instead that I have undergone their training to the limits of my capacity and that I have found much more similarities between all of these paths than uh, differences. So although I think it is important that if anyone is brought into any religion, for this person to find the truth in that religion. Because, for example, there are many people that have been brought into Christianity by their parents, and they then they became disillusioned from Christianity, and then they way, went and walked other paths, perhaps shamanism, and then, and then they had a, a Christian rebirth. And that means that they have a karmic connection with this discipline, with this tradition of Christianity. The same happens with any other tradition. So the fact that I have sought, pursued, assimilated, uh, and can transmit some of the teachings that I received um, does not mean that one should attempt the same. Um, it is much better to find a teacher and a discipline and go through it completely. It has only been the characteristics of my own personality and idiosyncrasy to have gone across the world to find various teachers, but in under no circumstance I've done this out of a desire to know. I am not really that interested in knowing anymore, and even though I might appear to be knowledgeable in many subjects, the only subjects that we truly know are the ones that we can express silently in the ceremony. Whether that ceremony is a Sufi ceremony of dancing dervishes, or it is a meditation ceremony in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, or it is um, an ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazonian tradition, or a wachuma ceremony in the Andean tradition, or a Tiananakatl ceremony in the Nahuatl tradition, etc., 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 there are, it's very easy for ourselves to become confused. And this is something that I don't wish for your audience. So instead of collecting a lot of these stories, to live our own story is the fundamental thing and the true kernel of wisdom that we will discover. Uh, and the last thing that I would say is that effort and faith pay off. And sometimes the longer it takes for us to receive the, uh, the vision or whatever we're looking for under any of these lineages, the longer we train, it means the longer we suffer. But it also means that the higher our potential is. Because if we need to train more to understand. It means that our limitations are greater. But what does it mean that our limitations are greater? It means that our mind is very complex. So what we want to do is to bring the complexities of the mind to a halt and to realize the pure simplicity of the ultimate reality, not speaking in a transcendental fashion as if the ultimate reality was you know, the throne of God or just a white light vibrating somewhere in the center of the cosmos, but just the pure 
uh, condition of the vehicle we are inhabiting now with its spectrum of perceptions and in seeing things clearly. So the more complex our mind is, the harder it will be to see things simply. However, once we have experienced this ultimate simplicity of the ultimate reality, as I say, we also have various other capacities to bring people from very different walks of life into this path. So although for me, my intellectual complexity has been a burden in my path for a very long time because I sought to understand intellectually rather than with experience. After one receives that experience by undermining the whole Tower of Babel of our intellectual complexity, the intellectual complexity, which in the past was a limitation to understand simplicity, it can be used to convey that simplicity uh, to very different uh, and very complex uh, kinds of beings. So in the same way that I can speak like this to you, which more often than not, we share the same um, idiosyncratic roots. Um, but I think I have been effective in explaining things like this to a Christian and to a Sikh and to um, a Buddhist and to a Hindu. And I have only developed that capacity by transforming the limitations of my intellect into something that can uh, give something to others. So I hope that this has been a fruitful voyage to everyone that has been listening. Uh, thank you so much, brother, for your questions and your time. And I hope to see each other soon. Definitely. Thank you so much, Juan. Like always, it's a pleasure to have conversations with you. The profoundity uh, or the, the depth of our conversations simply helps see life from different angles. Just to finalize, where can people find you? Where online? And also, how is your schedule for the upcoming months or where should we find it to, to go and practice shamanism with you? Yes, I, I am in the middle of developing a webpage at the moment, um, which will include itinerary, uh, teachings, and uh, various other things that people would be interested. Um, my schedule for the coming year is that I'll be in Bolivia during the month of February and Peru during the month of March. I will be traveling through Europe in April, May, and June. Um, July, August, and September, I will be in the United States. October, November, and December, I'll be in Tibet, Nepal, and India. And who knows what happens after. But if any of your audience would want to meet me halfway at any point of my never-ending shamanic tour, I would be glad to, to meet you. And uh, if anyone wants my contact, I think I can... I can give it to you. It's it's my name in Instagram, just Juan Guar, and uh, I receive uh, comments and requests uh, via that platform for now. Great. Thank you so much one more time, Juan. And this is not going to be the last time. Definitely, we're going to have more encounters. If you guys enjoyed this conversation with the shaman Juan Guar, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to receive notifications for upcoming interviews. That's all for today. Keep learning and keep optimizing. See you next time.